not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in the books that I write. You can find them on my website. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Nicole Cameron, a coach and a woman in successful long-term recovery who is here today to share her story and share her heart. Hi, Nicole. It's nice to hear your voice. Hi, Jean. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Times and I've so enjoyed your company, but I never got to talk to you one-on-one like we're going to talk today. So I'm really looking forward to it. I know that you have put a lot of thought into the time Mm -hmm. that we're going to spend together today. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Nicole. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Great. Thank you, Jean. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicole Cameron. I am in long-term recovery from alcoholism. My first day of sobriety was November 11th, 2007, and I was a 40-year-old woman. Today, I'm 54 years old, and I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm so grateful to be here today and just to share my story, and hopefully it will serve even just one person. I love to spend time with my handsome husband, Hal. We love to walk and hike. We have a beautiful, soft-coated Wheaton Terrier. His name is Ollie, and he's almost seven now, and he is our fur child. We spoil him rotten. We take him everywhere with us. I love to read nonfiction. I love gardening. And my heart is really for mentoring other women and serving in my community in in lots of different forms. I also love my work. Like Jean said, uh, I'm a life coach and I started my business 11 years ago. It literally fell in my lap when I uh, came across a coach who uh, scholarshiped me some coaching time. I worked with her for 90 days and have continued to work with her since then. So it's over 10 years I've been working working with her and, and I just and I just love it. I fell in love with coaching. My focus is on helping successful people create change. You know, we change, change in their stories, change in their narrative, change in their relationship with themselves, with others, with substance, with their behaviors, by providing solutions and healing their worth and practicing self-compassion and living into their core values, identifying their core values and identifying core strengths and creating a healthy and positive thought life. So that's a little bit about me and where I'm at and what I love. What happened and, and where I come from is, is I come from a place of many different cultures. And hopefully I can, I can clearly articulate the different cultures. I was raised by, you know, a loving mother and father along with my brother and sister. And then we experienced separation. We experienced divorce and estrangement from one another. 
my memory is not so is not so good so I'll apologize I was about 5 or 6 years old at that time and then I was in a culture of a single mother and I was an only child my brother and sister left and lived with my father on separate occasions and it was just my mom and I and then I experienced her death I was 11 and she was 38 and she had a heart failure and I did do some research around you know what what caused a 38-year-old woman to pass away from heart failure? That door is open. I, I don't really have any answers to that. I just find acceptance that that was her time. But it was a difficult time for me. And at, you know, at 11 years old, I moved away from my home in, in Edmonton, Alberta. And, and I went and I lived with my mom's brother and his family. And then I received a phone call from my father. He was getting remarried and wanted me to come and be his ring bearer slash flower girl at his wedding. And I had not seen him in about six years. I was 11 then, and, and I hadn't seen my brother nor my sister or any of my father's family for a long, long time. And so that was an interesting period of time. It was a different culture, right? I walked into a blended family. I was, you know, reunited with my dad and my sister and my brother, along with meeting my new step family. And during all of that time, alcohol was present. It's my belief that it's a family disease and alcohol was being used by someone or many at any given time during my childhood. And initially I feared alcohol. It scared me. I saw it change the people that I loved and it threatened my security and it threatened my safety. And I promised myself I would never allow alcohol to steal from me like I had witnessed. It stole people and time and security and safety. I had my first drink at 14 years old in a backyard of a girlfriend's house. Her elder brother and, and his friends were having a few drinks in spring. It might have been even around this time of year. You know, the snow was kind of melting and, and there was, you know, mounds of, of icebergs, as, as Canadians like to call call it in our backyards. And, and I remember having a drink and I, and I remember the ease and comfort and the warmth. And I felt like, oh, I have belonged. I, I, I belong with this group and, and I'm included and I'm a part of and accepted. In my early twenties, I drank socially with my friends in the nightclubs and dancing. And, you know, this was in the eighties and it was a fun time. It was a really fun time. And but unfortunately for me, soon that changed and alcohol turned quickly on me. It was no longer fun. I could no longer, not that I thought I could control it, but I, I could never control the amount I took. It always affected dif me differently than my girlfriends. And it started stealing time. I recognized that. It started stealing my time. I became late for commitments that I made with people that I loved. And when I, you know, when I showed up, I was lit. I had had a couple of drinks under my belt or many drinks under my belt and, and I was lit. Soon, it be, soon I became, you know, a messy emotional drunk at functions. My close friends, they started not wanting to spend time with me if I had been drinking. If they had, you know, if they became suspicious that I was drinking, they, they didn't want to go out with me. The, the having fun and dancing at the nightclubs, you know, wasn't fun for them to be, to be with me if I had already been, you know, in the sauce, as I, as I like to say. Many times, you know, I woke up foggy with, with little to no memory of the night before, and my body was bruised, and I had black eyes. You know, don't even ask me uh, what happened, because I don't know. I don't know. Blackout drinking became more normal. I was very ashamed. 
and full of shame and guilty. Drinking alone quickly became a norm for me. And then, unfortunately, a suicide attempt in my early 20s made me realize that bad things happened to me when I drank. And they were progressing and becoming more and more bad things. There was so many more happening and, and, and so many more instances that I couldn't remember where I was and who I was with and who was with me and how I got there. I remember a very stern discussion with a psych doctor at the U of A before I was released from the emergency department that, that time of my life. And he said to me that I had a profoundly, I remember that word, profoundly serious drinking problem and I better seek help. And he was stern and he pushed a pamphlet at me and he said, quote, you better get some help and you better get yourself to AA. You are an alcoholic. And I thought, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? I was so full of shame. And to be honest, I was scared to death. Alcohol had a firm grip on me emotionally and physically, but I knew you know, something needed to change. I had to stop drinking. And that psych doctor, kind of funny side note, he was so good looking and so handsome. And he looked at me like, you know, get it together, girl. You know, I was early 20s. And again, I don't remember exactly how old I was. Um, it's funny how the mind does that. It just puts things in a box for me. And and I can't exactly remember periods of time. But I, I remember him. And I can see him sharing this with you today. I can see his face. And I see his eyes. And I see the seriousness of him saying to me, you better get yourself to AA. I didn't even know what that meant. But I read the pamphlet. And I stopped drinking. I was signed up in a program that a woman came to see me weekly about my drinking and to see how I was doing. And I enjoyed our visits. And I don't remember again how long she visited me, but I remember that I had stopped drinking. However, I wasn't sober. I soon discovered that a little marijuana took the edge off. And bad things didn't happen when I used marijuana. Things quickly got better once I stopped using alcohol and I began making good decisions. Funny how that happens. I left a very toxic relationship and I moved to Calgary. I established myself with a good job downtown. I found an amazing apartment in a really trendy neighborhood and I was able to walk back and forth to work. And I fell in love with Hal, the kindest man I had ever met. And during our quick courtship, we attended a friend's wedding and I convinced myself that I could have one glass of wine and make it last all night. I was successful. It had been five years since I had my last drink. I thought I was okay. I would manage and control alcohol better this time, I promised myself. Soon Hal moved into my tiny little trendy apartment and we were a social couple, enjoyed dancing and parties and we bought a house and got married. And I thought I was managing my alcohol. I periodically drank through that time. And Hal was a fun, social, liked person. And he had a huge group of friends. And we did a lot of socializing. And we did a lot of drinking. Um, But I was managing. And I was always thinking about drinking. The alcoholic cycle and spiral came quickly when we started to experience miscarriages shortly after we were married. I got married um, when I was 33 years old, and I think it was about at 35, we had our first miscarriage, and each loss created a deeper and deeper bottom in my alcoholism, and I was heartbroken, and I was ashamed, and I felt shame, and I felt unworthy, and the only reprieve from the pain was drinking. I took a leave from work. I could not cope with the grief and the pain of losing five babies. What was I good for if I couldn't have a child? 
I asked myself and I shared with Hal in deep sorrow. Alcohol was my escape. It was my solution. The way I self-soothed, it was four years of chronic alcohol use, broken promises to Hal, and he finally broke and hit an emotional bottom. He could no longer watch me kill myself with alcohol. He was leaving me. He was done. And this time I heard him and pleaded and begged him to give me one more chance. And he did reluctantly and with great apprehension. This was not the first time we were at this space in our relationship, in our marriage. I had promised it, promised for four years that I would manage my drinking, control my drinking, give up drinking, eat before I drank, switch to alcohol, only drank wine, only had beer, only drank, you know, after five o'clock. I had all these different promises to hell and broke every one of them. But the deepest promise was, of course, to myself that I could not control my alcohol. And my road of recovery included many practices and new disciplines and rituals and routines. And, you know, that promise to hell that day it would have been in May of 2007, for some reason stuck. I was very scared of who I was going to become without alcohol, who I was without alcohol. Would people like me? Would I be fun? But anyway, the road of recovery, like I said, I started to create different routines, different ways of looking at things. I knew that everything had to change if I was going to live an alcohol-free life. And I had to change everything I thought I knew about life and what I thought I knew about love, about God, about mortality. I started attending a 12-step program. I educated myself on alcoholism and addiction. I read everything I could get my hands on. And a lot of those books I'm surrounded with right now. And I, I continue to read everything I can about addiction and alcoholism. So in November, it was my last drink on November 11th, Remembrance Day. And in January, I applied to get into a 12-week outpatient program in a women's treatment center here in Calgary. I was really excited to attend. And I walked myself in there sober and ready to learn about who, who I was and I found also spiritual mentorship during that time. I worked with my personal coach also. And I started to recover. I started to recover my personal integrity. And I got honest. And I recovered my faith. And I recovered proper relationship with myself and with others. I, you know, I started to be able to show up for people, to show up for commitments, to show up for my family and start to rebuild those relationships. And during my first year of recovery, you know, life happens. Life continues to happen in recovery. During that first year of recovery, Hal and I suffered our sixth miscarriage, and we were devastated again. However, I did not use alcohol to cope. I did not use alcohol to self-soothe, and I did not escape through the bottom of a bottle. And I felt my feelings and I trusted the process. I practiced gratitude and I shared with my husband, my handsome husband, Hal, my feelings of disappointment, my feelings of failure, failure to him to not give him children in the family that I know he so, dis he so desperately wanted. And I shared with him my shame. You know, I don't know how, well, I do know how. I, I had to dig deep and, and I looked for the positive in a very painful of experience painful of experiences of how, how could I use this pain for good? How could I serve someone else through my pain 
and, you know, and how he jumped on that wagon with me and, and it, and it brought us so much closer together. We joined hand in hand and we started, you know, this road to recovery together. He is not alcoholic and not to tell his story, but he is familiar with alcoholism, not just because of me, but because of his own past experiences and relationships. And so what it's like now, this is my favorite part of my story always. And today, many of those daily practice, practices that I, I, I created 14 years ago, almost 14 years ago, I still use today. I use the same practices, the same disciplines, uh, routines even. I still meet with my coach. I still enjoy spiritual mentorship and peer support. You know, my mornings are, are still my favorite part of the day, waking up knowing where I am and what I've done and what I've said and who I've said it to, remembering months and time. You know, like I shared with you all before in in my alcoholism, I, I, I lost time. It stole so much time for me. And it wasn't until I was in recovery, I became aware that my alcoholism had gone back further than I originally was, was aware and was willing to accept even. I know today I was always trying to manage my drinking. I didn't drink like other people and I didn't think about drinking like others, you know, standing in my, in my girlfriend's backyard that spring day when I was 14 years old, having a vodka and orange juice. I knew that I had better get out of there and get home, that I, this was a slippery slope for me. I knew that. I knew that deep in my core and I can admit that today. So back to what it's like before I get out of bed, I give thanks I give thanks for, you know, another spectacular day of sobriety and for a new day of opportunities. And I can, I can see it and I can be grateful for it and I can accept and, and be open to whatever, whatever the day is going to bring. Hal and I share coffee and we reflect on our day. We make plans and we connect and then off to our respective offices. We're both working from home and I'm in a, co- in a warm, cozy, well-lit space in the basement where I am right now talking to you all. And I begin my morning disciplines of journaling, reading, prayer, meditation, breath work. And I'm mindful of living into my values and living from my strengths. And I strive to live a principled life. I've become more confident, more honest, more authentic and real. No more people-pleasing, also in recovery from people-pleasing. <laughs> you put down the alcohol and then all of a sudden I've discovered all these other interesting things that, that I put into boxes that I now am unpacking and, and walking through. So with my morning rituals and journaling and prayer and meditation, I'm filled to meet my clients where they are and hold space for them, listen deeply and reflect honestly and encourage put my hand in that, their hand and become their partner and help them transform and change. Just meet them where they are and love them where they are. And recovery has given me so many gifts, especially the ability to show up for others and hold space and have that time with them. And with my family and Hal's family and our friends, you know, going back to wondering who I would be without having children what good was I without having a child or children? And I just, you know, I just had a, a thought sharing with you all that just most recently, I, I had the beautiful gift of celebrating my sister's 60th birthday. And her and I were estranged for a long time in our childhood. Today, you know, we are sisters, even though we weren't raised together. 
We are sisters and we share space together. And I was able to meet her halfway between here and where she lives in the country. And, you know, she showed up and I showed up and her daughter showed up and my niece and, and two, two little great nieces and a beautiful nephew-in-law and my husband, and of course, our Ollie, our fur baby. And we just spent, shared time together and celebrated her. And, you know, that is, that is probably the second most powerful gift of sobriety is relationships. You know, first, of course, are my mornings because I'm sober. And then second, it's how I'm able to show up in my family's life, in my sister's life, in my cousins, you know, the cousins that I lived with for a short period of time in my childhood, we're extremely close and they are like my siblings. And unfortunately today we don't have my brother with us. He passed away about four years ago now, and it was a struggle for him. He died young, um, but I'm not going to share his story here. I just... um, grateful for the time, the short time that him and I had together and, and him and my sister and I had together. So I've learned in recovery about the importance of my growth and the importance of wanting to learn and, and, and living a life of humility. And I'm naturally curious. I'm naturally curious and I'm always reading two or three or five books. And um, some of the books I'm really enjoying now are, are of poetry and self-discovery of poultry. And I'm taking courses, so many courses, which if any of you know about coaches, we, we get a little obsessed with learning and taking more and more courses. This one's extremely special because next month I'm in a course that is going to teach me how to write my first nonfiction book. And I'm so excited. I'm so scared and I'm so full of anxiety, but I'm so excited and I'm actively involved in mentorship and peer support and just always trying to pour into my community and in best ways that I can. And I think that's my story, Jean. And I just, I really want to thank you for uh, this opportunity to be of service and this opportunity to share my story. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Nicole. It's an honor to hold space and get to know you better. You know, I didn't realize the weight of grief that you carried. You are a very sunny, bubbly person. And not that it ever shows what a person has in their past, but, you know, no one would guess that of you. And I don't think it's because you hide it. I just think it's because it's part of our humanity, right? That we sort of, we make assumptions about people. And when someone presents in front of us as being cheerful and their life looks attractive, we just don't make assumptions about what they're carrying. So it's just such a reminder. And I thank you for, for sharing your story and being able to speak about things that are vulnerable and painful. As you were telling your story, so you and I are almost the exact same age and live only a few hours away from each other and both spent our teenage years in the same city, but never knew each other. And so as you were telling your story, I was just thinking of some split screen movie, you know, of two women living opposite lives, which it feels like ours were in many ways. And yet here we are both arriving at the same place, right? Of being, (laughs) first of all, our very different paths took us to the same place in terms of developing problematic relationships with alcohol and then discovering ourselves and, and healing all those old wounds. And so I just find that so interesting too, how there is no one way 
that we get this and there's no one way that we fix it. As a coach now, I'm curious about that. So you, you really have a heart for women and you really love to connect with women. Do you find that your natural curiosity about their backstories, how do you find that people are about digging into their own past? Was it hard for you to look back and suss out the details of your past? And do you find that other people are reluctant or eager to do the same? Hmm, loaded question, Jean. <laughs> In 30 seconds or less. No, just <laughs> you can talk for the whole half hour left on this. But really, I just I just think that this is this is really the crux of it, isn't it? Like our recovery, we put down yeah. the bottle, but then we start to look inside. And and the reason mm-hmm. a lot of us drink was to not look inside. So oh, absolutely. I'm curious about about your experience with that. Mm -hmm. So um, what I've learned with working with women specifically, I mean, and I do work with, with some men, but working with women specifically is that it's really a 50, 50 split. And it depends where the woman is in her journey. Like you said, you know, we, you, you and I, we, we drank and, and I can talk for myself as I drank to escape. I had drank to escape all of the loss and all of the abandonment and separation and divorce and death, I, I drank because of that. And a lot of uh, the people that I work with, it's the same. They drink to self-soothe and to escape and put those things, each relationship in a box, each painful relationship in a box. And so I'm really conscious and careful when I'm dealing with people about when they're available or ready to open the box of of each of those relationships. And that's usually how it goes is that we'll put, you know, five different relationships in five different boxes. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of time and a lot of willingness to start opening up the box and then actually emptying the box and looking at what's in it. And then taking those experiences that are in the box and finding a place of acceptance for them and a place of healing and forgiveness I've just noticed that everyone is different and and I often will share my experience if it's going to serve someone if if I have a woman that you know lost a mother very young I will tell them and and I know that some people who are professional coaches or even in mentorship and peer peer to peer support especially professional coaches won't open up that way but I do because it serves them and it gives them uh, if I'm vulnerable, it it then allows them to trust me and then they can trust themselves and, and share. And then that's where the healing starts. You know, I just found for myself, I, I can't heal if, if I don't admit, if if I, I've got to get away from the denial, come um, out from behind the denial and accept what is. I help my clients do that. If that's where they want to go, if that's what they want. Wait, if that's what they want. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting point. So do we know what we need? Do you feel like we instinctively know what we need? Or is it just a matter of readiness? I think it's both. I think intuitively we know. Intuitively we know. However, there's so much fear. Mm-hmm. There's so much shame. There's so much guilt. There's self-loathing that it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But intuitively... You know, I always like to look at it like under a huge mound of dirt is a light. 
And I like to help my clients dig out the dirt to the light. And that intuitiveness is the light. We're trying to get to the light and the dirt is our life experience. And so we've got to go through the life experience, however we want to go through it, how much ever we're willing to deal with it to get to the light, to get to our true selves, to get to our authentic, real, genuine selves. We got to dig through the life experience. So I, I do, I think intuitively we know that's why coaching is powerful because it's not a hierarchy. It's a partnership and I'm digging on one side and they're dig- the clients on the other side and we're digging to get to her true self. I love that imagery. In fact, the book of poetry that I wrote called the Ember Ever There, that is what the Ember Ever There is. On one of my very first therapy sessions, psychologist walked me through kind of a meditation of visualizing a blue light inside of myself. Because I had gone to her sort of say, I don't like my personality. I need you to help me dismantle it and build a better one. And she said, okay, well, Jean, we're going to go inside and let's find that light inside of you and, and clean it off and polish it up and bring it back out again. And that had never even occurred to me as being a possibility. And it was just such a beautiful, powerful thing. And so that's what I wrote about in that book. And the way you talk about it just takes me right back to that moment. That was a real pivotal moment for me realizing that I didn't have to reinvent myself or, you know, create another new Mm -hmm. um, mask to wear, which was really what I thought I was seeking. Like, oh, I'm sober now. I need a sober mask. It was more, no, you, you need to go inside and, and find that person that you buried under all those layers of protection. Yeah, exactly. So for you, was that light inside of you? Was it an 11-year-old Nicole, a 14-year-old Nicole? Like, can you pin an age to it, do you think? For me, it really felt like 12 for some reason. I felt like it was 12-year-old me that I was recovering. But do you have an age that you attach to it? Hmm, that is such a good question. No one's ever asked me that. And I have never attached an age to that light until right now you I'm look so I'm looking at 11 no I don't think it was um I think it was younger I think I was Mm -hmm. more mm, I think I was more about three Mm. or four and I say that because I have a fantastic home video of my sister and I so if I'm three she's nine and um she is the hottest go-go dancer I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I mean, oh my gosh, my sister shook it and she was teaching me how to go-go dance. That's the light. That's adorable. Absolutely adorable. Yeah. So some of that inner child work and recognizing our inner child, um, I know there's power in that. In fact, sometimes... I think someone, a former guest of this show, talked about when they are having a strong reaction or like a triggered reaction, they learned to say, how old am I when I feel that way? So can you talk about that? Do you work with your clients with that at all in terms of identifying like where in our life is that reaction coming from? Yes, um, I, I have had some experience with that with certain clients 
And you know what? Most recently, specifically, it's a male client that I have right now. He is very self-aware and he's um, eager to do deep dives. And so we do talk about, you know, well, how old is he? How old does he think he is or feel he is? Mm -hmm. So I do do that with my clients. The ones that are, that can go that deep. It's for some, for some of us, it takes a long time to get that deep. It takes a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of self-awareness work to get that deep. You work with men and women. Do you find that men recover differently typically, or does it even split along gender lines? Yes, I think they do recover differently. And I think that it's been in my experience over just this last, you know, 11 years of coaching that even though, you know, I talk about putting things in boxes, men are much neater at their boxes and their compartments. They're very, and they're older. They're, they're there for a longer period of time. And men forgive much quicker, much quicker of others. Maybe not so much self-forgiveness, but they forgive others much faster than women do. Women um, often love to hold resentment and grudge because of, you know, their own self-centered fear. You know, who are they if they, if they don't have that resentment? How can they justify their behavior if they don't have the resentment or grudge? And so, yeah, men and women do, they, they, they recover differently has been my experience. I feel like it was so insightful to me when I started looking through different recovery programs and choosing patches from each one. And when I looked at the 12 step program and, and learned that exploring our resentments was part of the process, I found that fascinating because I really felt like well, my resentments are not only fully justified, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're part of my story, damn yeah. it. And it's a good part of my story. And I, now you're telling me I'm going to have to not only take responsibility for things that aren't my fault or, or that I feel justified in, but I, you know, I'm going to have to change my whole perspective or change my story. And yeah, that is, that is what it's all about. Can you talk about why that helps? my resentments kept me sick. They kept me emotionally ill. They kept me spiritually ill and physically ill because, you know, like you said, it was part of your story. They were a part of my story. You know, if my parents hadn't divorced, my mother hadn't died. If my sister and brother hadn't left, um, if the boyfriend didn't do this, if, you know, if the job didn't do that, um, you know, it, it kept me in a sick space in my, in my thinking. I had to grow up. I had to mature spiritually and emotionally. I needed to mature and own my part in different situations where I thought I was justified in um, being angry with someone. I had to grow up. What does that mean then? What does, what does it mean to grow up in that way? Yeah, just to, just to own what my part was in that situation. Own, own how my... Um, poor decisions actually got me into that resentment in the first place. You know, when I was mm-hmm. drinking, I made such poor, poor relationship decisions, uh, specifically relationship decisions, and got into relationships with people that I should have never gotten into 
I had no business in. You know, I, I tend to have, I sought out other people that drank like me, but even more worse than I did. And hence it took me into places that, you know, were pretty dark and I had to own my part in that decision-making that got me into those places. So instead of resenting abandonment issues that I had maybe against my dad or my mom, I had to own my part that, oh no, alcohol, the decision of alcohol took me to this space. I had to stop denying that I had a part in any of those resentments. Instead of looking at what people were doing to me, I had to look at what I was doing to me through my drinking, through my decision-making, through the relationships I was creating as a result of, of wanting to drink and staying in that place of using. Because let's be clear, Jean, when I was in my active addiction, which I would say started in my late teens to early 20s, everything I was doing was manipulating to get what I wanted, when I wanted, and how I wanted, and how much I wanted. So everything revolved around my use of alcohol. And if, you know, some of my best friends didn't want to, didn't want to go out nightclubbing with me, well, that was a good resentment, right? Ah, they don't know what they're missing. And off I'd go alone. And then I'd wake up in all kinds of crazy places. But it was her fault because she should have come with me the night before. I wouldn't have been in that strange bed if she had gone with me the night before. I had to own my part. Mm -hmm. You talked about being a people pleaser too, and people pleasing is, is, is manipulation. It's mm. just really pleasant manipulation, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it is still manipulation. Yeah. It's just trying to make other people do what you want. If, if, even if all that is, is like you, right. To like you. So, <clears throat> so yeah. if your yeah. alcohol use was, was um, marked by manipulating others. But then even when you're as a people pleaser, even when you're just going about your day to day, the non-drinking part of the day, even though that gets smaller and smaller as alcohol takes over one's life, if we're people pleasing our way through that, we're really manipulating all the time, right? And really never being ourselves. I found it interesting that you we're struggling with that identity crisis of um, worrying that, you know, no one would like you anymore if you were sober, if you were a non-drinker, or that they wouldn't want to be around you. But then, you know, the irony is that, Nicole, you didn't really sound like you were all that fun. No. <laughs> As a drinker. No. And you're right, Jean. And near the end, no one wanted to be around me, especially my handsome husband, Hal. I mean... There was four years of promises to him, four long years of promises that I was in severe chronic alcoholism. And no, no one wanted to be around me. No one. Today they do. You're delightful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Early in your story, you said you help people work on their thought life, a healthy and positive thought life. Mm -hmm. I enjoy that term. I hadn't heard it before. I wrote it down. Talk about that. Why is that important? Yeah, positive thought life. That, of course, comes from my own personal experience of often being a play, in a place of, of a negative thought, of negative self-dialogue and, and negative narrative, the ongoing you know, critic that we all know about, helping myself move out of a negative thought 
space into positive thought space. And I've done that through just the practice of, and I say just the practice because it is a decision to live from my strengths and not from my weaknesses. In the past, I often had lived out of my weaknesses, hence the people-pleasing, hence the controlling of how people perceive me. And today I, I live out of what my strengths are. I don't worry so much on what my negatives are or what my weaknesses are, but I, I live out of that place of the positivities. Well, what am I good at and how, and how will that serve? How can I serve instead of what am I not doing? What am I doing? You and I both have been sober each for quite a long time now. We're getting there, you know, (laughs) and my belief when I quit drinking was that, you know, I would, I would get this fixed and then I would be along my merry way. And here I am 10 years later and it's easy for me day to day not to drink, but I'm still always working on myself. And so even for you, you mentioned that as you were prepping for this show, some things came up for you. Can you talk about that? What did you realize you were feeling as you got ready for our discussion today? Yeah, it was so interesting, Jean. It was, (laughs) you know, it's one of those God winks, as I like to say. For anyone that's wanting to do a podcast for the first time, do not paint your nails before because they get very messy. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to distract myself because I was full of anxiety. Um, my palms are sweating. I was pacing around upstairs nervously waiting for 10, 1030. I said to Hal, why did I say so late in the morning? Oh, I'll just paint my nails. And he just looks at me like I'm crazy. But what came up for me was that I felt perfectionist, perfectionism coming up. I can't control the outcome of the podcast, but I wanted to, I want to be able to serve at just one person. That's not up to me. Do you hear it? There's even some people pleasing in there. I hope the story resonates with just one person. Again, it's not up to me, but it surfaced. And I didn't even really think I was very much above uh, about perfection or suffered from perfectionism. But ah, here's a little box I'm going to, well, the lid is now popped open and I've unpacked it all here publicly. So I guess that's some work I need to do that I never knew. And really, you could have just chalked it up to nerves, right? You could have just said, oh, like I'm feeling nervous, but you got more curious about what was underneath that nervousness and asked yourself, Mm -hmm. what's going on? What am I afraid of? Because you've told your story before, so you know it's not that. And you know me, so you know Mm -hmm. it's not nervous about me. So you just kept digging until you really got down to that next layer. I just think that's so interesting that we never really run out of ways to uncover something new about ourselves and go a little deeper. Mm -hmm. I just think we're going to be such interesting 90 year olds, you know? I know. I can hardly wait. It'd be so fun. That's going to be some nursing home. Yeah. The the recovery (laughs) nursing home. We should have one big, one big, Uh. uh, bubble water party in our 90s. Oh my gosh. Won't that be something? Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you're writing a book. I look forward to reading it and I know it'll help a lot of people. Meanwhile, you mentioned that you're a voracious reader of recovery literature. So what are some of your favorites that you recommend? And particularly, what do you recommend for people that are starting out? Mm. So um, not specifically recovery, but if it was recovery, I always 
always recommend drink. Always. By Anne Delsit Johnston, right? Yeah. I always recommend her. She was one of my very first reads. And actually, she ruined me because every <laughs> other memoir that I picked up after that, I had a hard time because I loved drink so much. Yeah. I loved it so much. And then a couple of others that, you know, are sitting here in my library are The Power by Rhonda Byrne. I love The Power and I love most things by Louise L. Hay and Melody Beatty. And I love all books about principles like boundaries and self-confidence, self-esteem, anything that's a principled kind of nonfiction. Right now I'm reading the How to Do the Work by the Holistic Psychologist, Dr. Nicole Perra, I believe, Set Boundaries and Find Peace, and The Gift by Edith Egger. So not so much about how-tos, but more about discovering self. When do you read? Do you get up in the morning and read? Is that your time? Oh my gosh, yes. And in between clients, I read. I wish I could listen to books, but I can't. I need to touch and feel them and make notes and write in them and have a journal with them. My coach taught me to have a journal for every one of my books so I could not write as I'm discovering myself in the book and what I'm learning about the book and how it would serve someone else. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's yeah. So you don't give your books away when you're done with them because they're all no. covered in your notes. You have an interactive yeah. relationship with your books. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and I need to get your poetry book because that is my, my one of the, over the last two or three years, I love um, poetry books. And it's interesting because I think I'm discovering, I don't know this about the author when I first am drawn to a poetry book, but um, I think what I'm discovering about my intuition is that they're in recovery of some from something. So there's a April Green, right? Bloom Yourself, April Green, and Inward by Young Publo. Oh, the She Book. I'm so excited. I'm hearing all these titles I've never heard before. The She Book. Fabulous. Yeah. And I need yours. <laughs> yes. Add it to your stack. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I did in my book that was really important to me was that because I'm not a 12 step person, but was curious about the tools of the 12 step, but I found mm -hmm. the language of 12 step recovery a little bit antiquated and it just didn't land for me. And so I wrote a poem for each of the 12 steps to just try to paraphrase them and not, not in any way to say that I could say it better <laughs> than they originally were, but only to say, this is another perspective. This is how this program looks to me from this side. And I found that really interesting and I've had good feedback on it, but I feel like for people that aren't familiar with the 12 steps, it's kind of another inroad mm -hmm. in to just getting curious about, well, why does that help and how mm -hmm. does it work? That's what I was going for there. And I feel like you're right when, even if a person isn't in recovery from alcohol use disorder, when you're writing poetry, you're taking your experience, emotions, moments, observations, and just boiling them down to just the sparsest of, of words and the most crisp detail you can. And what I found in this, this is something I learned to do as a songwriter. So transitioning to poetry was easy for me, but the whole goal when you're writing songs isn't just to tell your story. 
it's even better to take it back a step from your story and talk about the emotion behind it so that everyone can relate to that song. Those are the songs Mm. where you hear it and you're like, oh my God, that person wrote that song about me. That's exactly how it feels. And those are the best songs. In some ways, that's why music videos can ruin songs for us because they take us out of what our own reaction is to it, take us farther from that kernel of truth. So that's really the beauty of poetry. They're just these little seeds of truth that then we can add our own experience to. Mm -hmm. Another book recommendation for you, if you or anyone likes poetry, is The Poetry Prescription. There's a few volumes of that. It gives you a, a situation or a feeling you might find yourself in and then gives you a poem to read as an antidote oh, to oh. that. It's kind of a fun concept. Oh, I love yeah. that. Well, this has been great. I love talking about all this stuff with you. Now, before I let you go, is for anyone who's just struggling today to get started. Lately, I've been hearing a lot from people that have really um, felt snowed under by COVID and either backslid in their recovery in one way or another, or have been gearing up for recovery. And now that there's a light at the end of the tunnel from this pandemic, I think people are feeling ready to to move forward. So for anyone who's in that position and just wanting to get started today, find the find the footing to get going, what are some steps that a person can take to move themselves forward? in their desire to make a change. My very first comment to anyone is interrupt their use. If it's alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gaming, whatever they find their relation their unhealthy relationship is, do something else. And I know that sounds ridiculous to somebody that's in active addiction, um, but I'm telling you just do something else else even if it's only for a minute. Interrupt the behavior, go for a walk, do some journaling, phone a friend, um, get onto Instagram, listen, you know, and follow some positive people on Instagram, you know, look up a hashtag recovery or a hashtag sobriety or alcohol free or something that is related to you and start putting in healthy, positive information into your mind so that you can start to change your thinking. They should listen to your podcasts. Gene, that's good. Something positive in their thinking, but interrupt, interrupt the urge, the obsession to pick up whatever it is that they pick up to self-soothe with that they want to change. Interrupt, interrupt it. Send a, send a text, find me on Instagram, send me a DM, follow Jean, follow some other people that are in recovery, reach out and interrupt the behavior. Mm. That is a great tip. And you're right. That's how it starts. And then mm-hmm. as we build our recovery muscles, yeah. it really is building a catalog of interruptions <laughs> that then become new behaviors, yeah. right? Exactly. That's that simple. Well, that That's is right. great. Nicole Cameron, thank you so much for your time today. It has been really wonderful spending time with you, hearing your story, getting to know you better. Tell our listeners how they can find you and connect with you. Oh, absolutely, Jean. Thank you. Um, You can connect with me. Um, I think probably the easiest way is my website, coachwithnicole.ca. So that's coachwithnicole.ca. And if you go to the contact page, you can directly email me. 
I did mention Instagram because it's my favorite social media. So you can always send me a message on um, Instagram saying that you heard me on the bubble hour so that I do respond because sometimes I won't respond if I don't know who you are. And I'm happy to always talk uh, to anyone and everyone, obviously, as a complimentary kind of conversation about coaching and where they're at always. Thank you. And your Instagram handle? Coach with Nicole. Coach with Nicole. All right. Nicole, thank you so much for your time today. And listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, My heart feels really full and tender after this time with Nicole. Check the show notes for the books that we talked about and Nicole's website and her Instagram link. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Just want to